This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at you, Kramer. Sometimes... Companies need to be willing to totally reinvent themselves if they want to stay relevant or even just stay in the game. You either bite the bullet, disrupt your whole industry, or you get disrupted, and you know what? You end up like roadkill on a good day. With the Dow gained 148 points, the S&P climbed 0.69%, and the Nasdaq folded 0.69%, the disruptors were some of the biggest winners. That's been a major recurring theme in this market since the year began. Now, I know the financial news has been dominated correctly by the decision by the president to ground the Boeing 737 MAX, joining the rest of the world in keeping the plane from flying until we find out what the heck caused those two crashes. I get that. It's a tragic story. Many have asked me about the suspension and its impact on Boeing, the stock. All I can say is that even though, of course, the stock went up a little bit today, it's a little too soon. But I have this. I have total confidence in the Boeing company to get to the bottom of this and restore any trust lost in the company. If that's enough, you should buy it. But I want to focus tonight on this disruptive winner's theory and also the losers that come from not disrupting. Look at the financial technology stocks to start. Visa, PayPal, Square, American Express, MasterCard. Today, the actual banks were able to rally for once. But for months, hedge funds have been crowding into the fintech plays disruptors, which have no interest rate risk instead of traditional banks. PayPal's made itself the de facto disruptor online credit card company and cash machine via Venmo. Square has taken a backseat to no one. Once they get to the point of sale technology installed in millions of businesses, they start giving those businesses loans against their cash register receipts, which, of course, Square can see. That's the traditional banks. It's way too hard for them to do that. See, these guys are better than the banks because they have access to the receipts and they know who's likely to default. What else? We know Facebook, Alphabet, and Amazon have disrupted the entire advertising market. As we hear time and again, these companies let let businesses do targeted advertising at the places where consumers are most likely to buy at that moment. That's been a disaster for traditional advertising. Think about all those ad-supported media companies that had to switch the subscription-based model because you just don't make any money. Google gets it all. You want radical disruption? Well, here's a theory for you. Look at the medical device companies that have upended the way we treat type 1 diabetes. Dexcom's continuous glucose monitor, CGM, paired with tandem diabetes insulin pump, takes a laborious process and makes it nearly effortless and painless. The insulin pump market had been dominated by Medtronic and Johnson Johnson, though the latter recently dropped out of the competition. Tandem's entry has changed the landscape. 
These two devices, Dexcom's glucose monitor and Tandem's pump, work together like an artificial pancreas. Go watch Diabetic Danica, who has a very good YouTube show about all things diabetes. Gives you a crystal clear rundown on how those two technologies work. Honestly, after watching those videos and, of course, knowing the research for these companies, uh, uh, the video is a little unprofessional, but it's informative. I wanted to call up Tim Cook, a.k.a. Tim Apple, and say, Eureka, forget your streaming video service. Just go buy Dexcom and Tandem Diabetes. Apple could pay a 50% premium for both companies, wouldn't even know when the money was missing. And put them together and still only spend $26 billion. It's a fraction of what they spend on buybacks alone. Apple's device is already connected to Dexcom's glucose monitor. Hey, this works. This changed things. Uh, they could give the hardware away for free. Uh, they give the hardware away for free, and then charge users ten dollars a month for the service, and it would be an instant hit among investors who think that service businesses aren't growing fast enough. What else? I can't tell you how often drugs disrupt older ones. That's the nature of that pharma business, isn't it? I suffer from migraines, suboptimal, and I was trying everything from extra strength Excedrin to Botox. Waste of time and expensive as all get up. Now, though, not one, not two, but three different companies, Amgen, Lilly, and Teva, have all developed amazing migraine, migraine treatments that have provided relief for thousands of people. And those drugs aren't even yet in the ballpark. There'll be hundreds of thousands when this thing is over. We're in the first inning. They're each slightly different, but according to many doctors, they are more effective than Botox. We haven't been following this one for ages, but one of our first guests on this show was a man by the name of Len Schleifer. He's the CEO of Regeneron. And he talked about how ILEA, the macular degeneration drug he was just working on, was far more effective than the competition. When I asked him how he knew, he explained every month a doctor would inject you in the eye with ILEA. I said, that sounded awful. Then he told me that the existing standard of care had had to be injected once a week. Well, that wasn't hard for me to recommend Regeneron, was it? Stock was at five. It's now 409. When you disrupt and it works, you end up with a red-hot stock. What happens to the companies that fail to disrupt, the ones that didn't innovate? Well, you just end up like Kraft Heinz. Go look at that lineup of products, will you? It's like something from Rocky and Bullwinkle. You're stepping into the Wayback Machine, Mr. Peabody. I've often marveled at how useful their foods would be in the event of thermonuclear war. Stuff lasts forever. But I, I, I regard it as dated. For a long time, this stock was propped up by analysts who wanted you to believe that you were going to be paid to wait with a hefty dividend while Kraft Heinz figures out another company you can buy in order to lay off a bunch of workers and boost profits. Not how to grow organically. Never. I, I, I tell you, they needed a fire department over there. They fired so many people. But the stock finally melted down once the people figured out this business is just plain terrible and the dividend had to be cut. Is there any way out of this dilemma? Or will Kraft Heinz end up like Roadkill, uh, you know, Campbell Soup, Conagra, Kellogg, Dean Foods? I mean, sure, some of those will get takeover bids, but it's too late. I got an idea because I like to be constructive, even about Kraft Heinz. I think they should buy a cannabis company. Hear me out. Jay Nelson Peltz, legendary activist investor, became a strategic advisor for Aurora Cannabis, one of the fastest-growing marijuana companies, in exchange for options to buy nearly 20 million shares, at least to start. When I caught up with Nelson, a guy who's on the board of Procter & Gable, who used to be on the board of Heinz itself, and, of course, a monster shareholder of Mondelez, no longer a bond, no longer board member, well, let me just say, he said that cannabis is the next frontier, and I agree. It can be used for snacking or drinking, for medicine, you name it. I told Nelson that I think cannabis could potentially end up disrupting up to $500 billion in commerce. Everything from the pernicious opioid drugs to animal health to analgesics, tobacco, and, of course, alcohol. The vice companies know this. Altria has taken a big position in Kronos, a very solid, well-run marijuana company, in return for $1.8 billion investment. We know that Constellation Brands, the maker of Corona, Modelo, has invested more than $4 billion in the largest cannabis company in the world, Canopy Growth. Canopy's given Constellation the keys to anything that can be eaten or drunk. 
the latter being a nice hedge, right, on slowing beer sales. My prediction, the alcohol companies are all going to get in this business. They already know how to sell products to get you intoxicated. The tobacco companies are also obvious players. Ethically selling weed may be a step up from selling cigarettes. Yeah, even for Jewel, watermelon Jewel. Hey, hey, yeah, let's have some at high school during a break. Anyway, that's why I think Kraft Heinz needs to move quickly. It's urgent that they sell Maxwell House and Breakstone sour cream and cottage cheese. Then take the money and move aggressively into cannabis. That would prove, without a doubt, that Kraft Heinz is a growth company with a forward-looking agenda. You want to know something that's really crazy? But also, right, if I were running Kraft Heinz, I'd just go out and buy Constellation brands and sell stock swap and cash. Or I'd go take Kronos away from Altria or, of course, scoop up some of Aurora in exchange for some cash. I know there's very little chance to nil that anyone's going to listen to me. I don't even care anymore. I just know what's right. Honestly, Dexcom and Tandem Diabetes are worth buying. If Apple doesn't want them, then Alphabet should go after them. they got a good relationship with Dexcom. If Kraft Heinz doesn't want to listen to me about cannabis exposure, that leaves room for other packaged food companies that otherwise are going to be moribund. Here's the bottom line. Trying to reinvent your business has its risks, but standing still may be an even dicier proposition. You either disrupt or you get disrupted. The companies that do nothing have the stocks that should be sold. How about we start the questions with Daniel in New York. Daniel! Hey, Jim, big fan of your show. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. First, first, I just want to say thank you for helping me and many investors become smarter investors. That's what I want. Thank you. So my question is about Snapchat. So since the IPO, Snapchat dropped under $5, but it had a nice comeback the past week. I know its earnings are not the best, but I also know you always say invest in companies that you use. Right. I and millions of millennials use Snapchat on a daily basis. Whenever I want to take a picture, I open up Snapchat and take a picture as opposed to using the phone camera. Okay. So do you think it still has potential with only a $14 billion valuation? Yeah, I mean, look, you can get it to 13, 14. Anything can go up like that. I just don't think the company's as well run as people would like. And I don't like the shareholder structure. But, yeah, you can own it for trade. I mean, it's obviously up from uh, from an abysmal low. Why don't we go to Harry in South Carolina? Harry! Hey, thanks, Jim, for taking my question. Of course. Um, back on November 8th, you had the new CEO of Dow DuPont, Ed Bream, on your show. Now that the one-issued shares of Dow will begin trading on March 21st, I believe, I was hoping you might comment on having him back as a guest and also giving your current opinion of the stock. Well, look, I'd love to have Ed Breen on any time. I, I have not been uh, that thrilled with the way the stocks performed. My travel trust owners are up on it, but boy, we round-tripped, and that is just disgraceful. Uh, we talk about tomorrow morning, uh, tomorrow at our 1130 conference school, but I'll sell it, tell you this. I think as we get closer to the breakup and we are really bearing down on it, you got to buy. Okay, guys, if you want to stay relevant, you have to be willing to disrupt even your own operation. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind. Man Money Tonight. Could investment in TJ Maxx maximize your portfolio profit? Well, I got to tell you, if there's still a deal to be found in a discount retailer, I'm going to let you know. Then, dude, you're getting a deal. Remember that? We got an interview with Michael Dell. I sat down with the CEO earlier today to find out what's headed for his great company. And Wells Fargo CEO Tim Sloan got grilled on Capitol Hill yesterday. Uh, it might have been a tough day for the company. But how did the shares do? I'm breaking it all down. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. 
This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity, or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com/apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com/apps. When a company with a fabulous long-term track record expresses a tiny bit of caution about the future and its stock gets mauled by the bears, there's a good chance you might be getting an incredible buying opportunity. I want you to just take a look at the recent trajectory of TJX, the parent of off-price chains like TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods. They're also a pretty unique place in the retail universe. This is one of the few companies that has proven to be almost totally immune to Amazon. And also other web-based competitors, which is why TJX keeps putting up great numbers and the stock keeps marching steadily higher. Now, for months, the bears have been telling us that TJX's business model unsustainable. At a time when so many other chains are desperately shutting down underperforming stores and investing in their online capabilities, TJX keeps adding new brick-and-mortar locations and spends very little on the web. The Bears, like a fellow Jay Soul at UBS, figure that these guys will eventually get steamrolled like pretty much everyone else in the retail industry. So when TJX reported a terrific quarter back in November, but more importantly, gave imperfect guidance, not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but not up to the snuff of TJX, Well, the stock, it just got annihilated. At a time when the rest of the market was selling off and everybody else was panicking, particularly about retail, TJX expressed a little caution about the future. Uh, So, of course, everyone acted like the sky was falling. Now, look, the stock had already declined from $56 at its highs to $49 on the day before it reported, November 20th. And it only bottomed at $41 and change by Christmas. What an opportunity that was. But we just learned from TGX again a couple of weeks ago, and it turns out there was nothing ever to fear at all. Yep, the company reported a spectacular quarter. And this proved to be a classic case of UPOD, with management under-promising UP in November so they could, uh, they could over-deliver OD in February. While the stock has come roaring back, TGX is still down about 4 bucks from its October 1st all-time high, even though the company's doing much better than uh, we thought it would be back then. Hmm, that sounds like an opportunity, doesn't it? The secret to the success? Well, TGX has a very different model than most other retailers, like, say, at Dick's Sporting Goods, the ones that are being eaten alive because they need to spend fortunes building out their own online presence to fend off Amazon. Rather than sourcing its merchandise directly from apparel or furniture makers, TJX buys up excess inventory from other stores. You know, companies that uh, retailers aren't doing that well, they've got to get rid of that inventory to bring in new inventory. You'll see it go to TJX. Now, uh, excess inventory is the bane of the traditional retailer's existence, but it's pleasure for these guys. Every season you get new product, and you need to get rid of that. And, and the old stuff, well, TJX just snaps it up, dated merchandise, discount, right? Because these other stores have no choice but to get rid of it. Then they turn around and sell it to you at a substantial markup. Look, the, the, the traditional retailers are doing badly. They have no choice. They sell it to TJX if they can't sell it to you. See, basically, TJX buys the leftovers from department store chains, and they do it on the cheap, which means TJX can beat Amazon on price. Amazon doesn't do that. 
You won't find a better deal on this stuff anywhere else. TJ Maxx and Marshalls for Apparel Home Goods does the same thing with furniture, appliances, and all sorts of chotskis for your house. That's why TGX and the other price, uh, off-price retailers have been so resistant to competition from the Internet. The key thing about the web, even more than it's convenient, is that it allows you to comparison shop. Retailers can't rip you off anymore because you can just run a quick search to find out the cheapest price, and that's terrible for their margins. Oh, but TGX was never ripping you off in the first place. The company has always offered its customers great deals on all sorts of high-quality merchandise. Going to TJ Maxx is like going on a treasure hunt. I've got one in my building downtown. Sometimes I just go to see what's really cheap. I, I, I picked up some T-shirts, some jammies. All right, we call them that. Uh, or a belt. Uh, this one I got, though, in Milan. But, you know, I bought one there, too. I buy all my belts there except for this one in Milan. This is the kind of bargain-based business that works regardless of how the economy is doing. And by the way, it is from time immemorial. I used to go with my mom to Marshall's. Unbelievable. That's where I got my first suit when I went to Goldman. Of course, they made me take it, go home and change. Anyway, um, look, there's only been a single year where TJX saw its same-store sales shrink. Oh, what a great business model. As long as you don't do anything too stupid, like unfortunately Burlington stores did. That's another off-price chain. Just put a really bad quarter. Part because they didn't stock enough winter clothes. They just had the, they also had the fashion wrong. I, I want those guys to come on because I know that they're going to get it right. So Burlington management, I know you watch. Come on. I think you might be in the right place, right time now. TGX has never been that boneheaded. So uh, let's go over what happened with the November sell-off because I want you to be prepared the next time the stock gets, e- gets hit, even though I think the fundamentals are strong. TGX reported a strong quarter with incredible 7% same-store sales growth, even as Wall Street was only looking for 4%. But the forecast was less bullish than many investors hoped for. Management's guidance for the next quarter was lower than expected across the board. That's what panicked people. Suddenly, everybody starts worrying that TGX is going to have a bad holiday season. And since the company doesn't give interim updates, we had to wait until the next earnings report on February 27th to learn how the business was really doing. And as it turned out, TGX had a spectacular holiday season. While the company delivered inline earnings and slightly better than expected revenue, the real kicker here was that the monster same-store sales growth, 6%. 6% year-over-year year really shocked Wall Street because Wall Street was only looking for 3.4%, even though the company itself had only got it to 2 to 3%. Best part, the strength was driven by higher traffic. People loved going to these stores. Clearly, management was just being conservative when they low-balled uh, with that scary forecast in November. So when TJX once again gave conservative guidance, this time nobody batted an eyelash. Oh, and it didn't hurt that the company boosted its dividend by 18% bringing the yield up to 1.8% at these levels. Also authorized a $1.5 billion addition to the buyback program. We also learned that the company's launching an e-commerce platform for Marshalls later this year. That's right, 2019. And you still can't buy anything from Marshalls on the Internet. Wow. I mean, they're not doing this because uh, competitors forcing because competitors are forcing them to do it. They just see an opportunity like they saw uh, with TJ Maxx. The key here is that they're not selling the same mix of products online. You still need to go to the stores for that treasure hunt experience that I love so much. No wonder the stock has rebounded to $50, $52 here. And I think it's got a lot more upside. When you see a retailer with phenomenal same-store sales growth that's putting up new stores all over the place, that's something you want to stick with. TJ Maxx and Marshalls are on fire. Home Goods saw same-store sales go up 5% last year. Okay, the one knock on TJX is that uh, those increases in traffic and same-store sales don't seem to be flowing through the bottom line. However, Matthew Boss over at J.P. Morgan, the best retail analyst operating today, argues that the company has lean inventories here and its margins are poised to expand going forward, which would give us a very nice earnings boost. Here's the bottom line on this important story, people. At the end of the day, there aren't many retailers that are having tremendous success on the brick-and-mortar side of the business. But TGX 
it's one of them. I like the stock here, but I'd like it even more if we got another breakdown like we had earlier. I just doubt that we will. It's too good a situation. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, Kramer is getting a Dell. Dell Technologies is back on the ticker tape. And the legendary founder is on Mad Money. We are the essential infrastructure company. Next. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. For years, they operated off the tape, reimagining their strengths with gaming, enterprise, and cloud. Now trading publicly again, can the man who made hardware look easy build a bright future for his namesake company? What do we make of Dell Technologies now that it's a publicly traded company again? The Dell of today is very different from the personal computer-focused Dell that took itself private roughly five years ago. The new Dell has become a major player in enterprise hardware and software, thanks to the acquisition of EMC. Just so gave the company an 82% stake in Kramer Faye VMware, one of our cloud kings. Think of Dell Technologies as a one-time PC assembler that's now the major arms dealer software and hardware to the rapidly growing data center business, as well as the Internet of Things. I'm betting it's got a bright future, certainly better than what the stock indicates. I have said over and over it's way too low, but don't take it from me. Earlier today, we had a chance to speak with Michael Dell, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Dell Technologies. Take a look. Michael, I've got to tell you, people may not even remember, but your story is remarkable. From the humility that you had, the humble beginning at University of Texas, building computers, to what now is, I thought, the best technology purchase in history. $67 billion for EMC. What a journey. You are not a PC company anymore, though. That's right. I mean, we combined the leading IT infrastructure companies in the world, and you know, a lot of people talk about now cloud infrastructure. Right. You take the software infrastructure that VMware provides, EMC and Dell and Pivotal together, and we've created you know, the, the, the world's leading IT infrastructure company, Last year, uh, $91 billion in revenues. Our cloud data center business grew plus 19%, almost uh, you know, approaching a $40 billion uh, business. And you know, we're gaining share, growing faster than all the leading competitors, and really have positioned ourselves as a company that can help our customers with the digital transformation, their journey to the cloud, and modernizing their IT environments their workforce environment, and also IT security. Right. I mean, I think people also would know storage, number one, server, number one. These are, these are businesses that I don't even think people knew that Dell was in, but when you were private, you got this, you built this empire. Uh, absolutely. And, and in you know, storage, uh, we're, we're larger than number two, number three, number four, all combined. You know, we grew more than half of the industry growth last year was Dell EMC. And, you know, again... Right. It's actually not that hard when you think about it in hindsight, when you combine the leader in storage and the leader in servers and the leader in virtualization and software 
infrastructure software. So you got you got the 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 winning hand, and customers are betting with us. And you know we got 99% of the Fortune 500, millions of small and medium-sized businesses around the world, and you know we continue to grow very nicely. Well, speaking of betting with you, or let's say investing, uh, I remember when you came public. I, I working at Goldman Sachs, uh, the compound rate 13,000. 500%, 27 times the S&P for your previous iteration. How do you beat that? Can you ever come close to that now? Well, that'd be pretty hard if yeah. you do the math, Jim. Law, law <laughs> but, of large uh, numbers. But, but, but you're a winner, and I, don't want, I want people to know who you were. I mean, I'm old enough to know. I want others to know. Look, we've got a fabulous business and you know, an incredible team. You know, 20,000 engineers, scientists, PhDs, constantly innovating. You know, we've invested, you know, well over $20 billion in the last five years in R&D. And the combined innovations, the customer relationships that we have, I think we're incredibly well positioned. And when you layer on top of that what is happening in the world today, right, with the explosion in the number of connected devices, the absolute uh, explosion in the amount of data, and then 5G coming around the corner. The requirement for new infrastructure is tremendous. And we are the essential infrastructure company, whether it's in the, you know, uh, you know where, wherever that may reside, right. right? The private cloud, the public cloud, the telco cloud, right. the boom in the edge. Right. We are going to you know, uh, serve up that, that capability better than anybody on the planet. Well, I think that there's some uh, demystifying we have to do. Well, first of all, I think the analyst coverage, while nice, is about some of the parts. Uh, I think that they're not including deferred revenue, not to be too nitty gritty, but we have to make, I have to make money for people, not including deferred revenue. They're not looking at the excess cash flow. Are those better ways to analyze the company just looking at the e- EPS? Well, you know, we'll, we'll let the analysts right. you know, d- decide that. But I want people at home to recognize you have, that you're uh, making a lot of money. $24 billion in deferred revenue on the balance sheet, in case anyone's paying attention. I am. It grew, it grew 15% year over year. Uh, and certainly when you look at the profile of the business, it is a very different business. I mentioned the 20,000 engineers right. before. Almost 90% of them are software. So it is a very different company than the company we had 10 years ago. And look, you know, customers are voting with, with, with their dollars. I still think that people, once again, are underestimating you. They're looking at you, uh, dude, you got a Dell. Uh, they're looking at you as a company that maybe even figured out how to uh, hook up a PC to this vast network. How did you have the vision to know that you had to kind of not leave that business behind because you're taking share still, 24, what, 24 quarters of share take? But 24 how did you quarters know? in a row. Right. Yes. But how did you know that you had to say that wasn't enough? Most of the companies haven't been able to pull it off. I don't mind being underestimated, okay? That's a good thing. We talked about that earlier. Right. Uh, look, again, you know, we had an alliance with EMC for many years. Right. We had a partnership with VMware. And it was pretty obvious to us that when you put all these together, you create an incomparable set of capabilities and a platform right. that is incredibly powerful for this future that is being built out right in front of us. And, you know, right. uh, no, the digitization the, the, is the, the revenue synergies have been right. much more than anybody anticipated, before. including us, by the way. You know, we right. grew 11 billion dollars, over 11 billion dollars just last year. 
you know, to, to you know, record 91 billion. So it's working very well. Okay, and you also got a billion dollars in synergies, far more than people felt when you when you did VMware. My problem is this: I'm going on the web, looking at Twitter, people are saying, "Well, wait a second. Why should I buy? Uh, why should I buy VMware, which is a stock that I've been recommending vociferously? When I should buy Dell? They own this big piece, and mathematically, how's it possible? This is what they're asking: that VMware could be bigger than Dell. That doesn't make sense. Can you help people understand the math? Well, we we do own a little over eighty percent of of VMware. You know, uh, I'm going to let the analysts do the math and, and, and you do the math. We've got to get some My job board, is to man. keep, you know, we grew every one of our businesses last year, double-digit rate. My job is to, you know, lead this incredible team and continue to grow faster than the industry. I think people over time will figure out that this is an incredible company and, right. you know, the right things will happen. You mentioned incredible team. One of the things I'm trying to do in 2019, I finally got to the age where I have to do what's, well, I always wanted to do what's right. You know that. But you have been an unbelievable uh, ethical business. You care passionately about that. You've won a number of awards for sustainability. And you and your wife, Susan, have do more philanthropy. And I look, I'll say it, okay? I have seen what you've done with healthcare. I've seen what you've done with a hospital. I have even seen what you've done with the monumental effort to rebuild Houston after the hurricane. How do you first do all these time? How do you uh, divide your time? But more importantly, why is it so important that you do these things, both for yourself and for your, your people and for your wife? Well, we, we've, we've been given a great opportunity. And, you know, look, I think, you know, if we look at the world economic system right. today, you could say it's not working perfectly for no. everyone. No. And, you know, we have been, we have been very fortunate. You know, uh, in August of 2017, when Hurricane Harvey uh, showed up on the coast of, of Texas, you know, uh, my wife and I were watching this on television, and they showed a neighborhood in Houston, Texas, and it was actually the neighborhood where I grew up, and rode my bike, you know, uh, every day on the street that they were showing, and Jim, the water was up to the rooftops. And, you know, to watch that and not do anything is irresponsible. And, and so, yeah, we organized this Rebuild Texas campaign, raised $100 million. We pitched in $36 million. But, you know, uh, it's a great privilege to be able to make privilege. a difference and to, uh, you know, do so not just with our company, but uh, personally. And, and, you know, my wife is super involved super in running the foundation on, on a, on, on a but, you know. last question. Let's go also future. Uh, sometimes I worry that AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that these things are going to leave people behind. Michael, we know that AI is the future. How do we protect people while we advance, and how do we control it in a responsible way? I think we have to, uh, as, as humans, make you know the, these these machines uh, reflect our humanity. Okay. In, right. and do it in a responsible way, in an ethical way. Um, and look, the pace of technology change is not going to slow down. It's no. just going to get faster and faster. It's leaving people behind. You know that. You've done it, more in it, your area than anybody. It's it, leaving it, people behind. It absolutely is. And, and we have to think about and figure out how we engage more of those people. But also, look, I'm a huge optimist that technology will do far more good right, than, right. than bad. And... You know, it's addressing all kinds of opportunities in healthcare, in education, 
in sustainability, the environment, Good. certainly, you know, businesses are becoming more productive and more effective. And ultimately, technology is about enabling human potential. And Internet of Things is about enabling human potential, right? We're spreading it out. We're bringing it to the edge. We're helping people with that. It's not disenfranchising. And, you know, the last 35 years have been remarkable and, and amazing, but actually this is just the beginning, right? <laughs> this is just, we're, we're still in the pregame show to what's going to come in the next 35 years. Okay, well, let's, let's leave it at that. That's Michael Dell. He's the chairman and CEO of Dell Technologies. You know I love the stock. What can I say? It's the most inexpensive tech stock I follow. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jim. Yesterday was a rough day for Wells Fargo and its CEO, Tim Sloan, who got raked over the coals by the House Financial Services Committee. It was almost painful to watch as Sloan was pilloried for his bank's past transgressions. So you think that Wells Fargo stock should have been clobbered yesterday, right? I mean, uh, you had Chairwoman Maxine Waters, no friend of Sloan in particular or the financial industry in general, running the show. She kicked things off by arguing that Wells Fargo was too big to manage, implying that it should be broken up. You had representative after representative calling for Sloan's head, accusing him of dishonesty, calling his sincerity into question when he explained that Wells Fargo has changed its way. You had a new board there. had a lot of big changes. And what happens? I'll tell you what happens. The stock barely gets dinged. As fiery as yesterday's proceedings were, there was almost no discernible impact on Wells Fargo's shares, which finished the day down nearly 11 cents. Why? Because we all knew Sloan would be would be turned into a congressional pinata, didn't we? The real question was whether we learned anything new that might impact the bank's outlook going forward. And there really wasn't. In fact, I think Sloan acquitted himself pretty well. So that makes me wonder, has the pessimism about Wells Fargo stock already peaked? I know the bank stocks have lagged the rest of the market since the beginning of the year, as the group isn't exactly in favor of the Wall Street fashion show. Far, far from it. I know Wells Fargo deserves to be raked over the coals for what it did. For, uh, for the, from the millions of fraudulent checking accounts that we learned about when the cross-selling scandal broke in 2016 to the overcharging for mortgages and auto loans. But I know Sloan actually agrees with me on this which is why the company has spent more than two years cleaning up its corporate culture. And while that doesn't change what they did, it makes me think that the stock may have a little less downside than many people think. If you believe all Wells transgressions and misdeeds have been uncovered, if you're not expecting another shoe to drop, and I'm not because the company's been under a microscope for three years now, then there's a real case to be made for buying Wells Fargo stock right here. How could I watch that hearing yesterday and even think about recommending Wells Fargo? Look, even as the members of Congress were effectively calling Tim Sloan the leader of a criminal enterprise, airing his company's dirty laundry all over our nation's capital, I thought the guy kept his cool. He stayed focused. He stayed on message. He stayed respectful. And he even showed some real contrition. Sloan seems to understand that he's being closely watched, and then he needs to get Wells Fargo back on the straight and narrow right now. Maybe it was all an act, but if so, it was a convincing act. I actually believed him. And from our perspective as investors, that's what matters. If all these worries can be put in the rearview mirror, we can finally judge Wells Fargo on the merits as an actual business again. So what's the bookcase here? When Tim Sloan came on our show in January, he made a pretty compelling argument. I asked him if the company could start playing offense after years of playing defense because of the political environment. Here's what he said. We are playing offense, and I think the fourth quarter, which was not the greatest quarter, it was, it was a great quarter. Right? They made it. You made yeah. a ton of money. Yeah, we made, look, we, we made $6.1 billion in the quarter. 
right? And when you look at our earnings per share for 2018, $4.28. It was the highest earnings per share in 166 years, right? right? So we're definitely playing offense. I don't know. That sounds pretty convincing to me. I was just waiting for these hearings to do this piece. Not only did Wells Fargo generate record earnings, they had their highest loan growth in two years, and deposit growth picked up, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the company's in great shape here. This is not the most ideal environment for the banks. You know that. But it's definitely doing better than it was. That's what matters. Consider what changed over the past year. Wells has seen its net interest margin. That's the difference between what they pay you for your deposits and what they charge you for loans increased a bit. Their efficiency ratio, a measure of cost control, is down from 65 to 62.6%. Meaningful improvement. Loans and deposits were effectively flat year over year, though they both grew versus the previous quarter. Most importantly, Wells Fargo is more profitable than last year, whether you're measuring by return on assets, return on equity, return on tangible common equity, or simply the record earnings per share numbers. Yet, since the beginning of last year, what's the stock done? It's down nearly 18%, making this the worst performer of all the banks. Wells Fargo has at these levels, it now sells for less than nine times next year's earnings estimates. Plus, the stock now supports a 3.6% yield, better than a sharp stick in the eye, and I think the estimates are made to be beaten. But why buy it uh, right now? What's the catalyst here? Simple. I think yesterday's hearing was the perfect moment for Wells Fargo to put in a bad sentiment low. Think of it as a hatred low. So unless there are more bad headlines to come, I doubt the stock will have that much more downside. Granted, the House Financial Services Committee holds another hearing on April 10th, but this time the CEOs of all six major banks will be there. So Tim Sloan won't be the only one on the hot seat. How long are they? They're going to really rate Goldman over the course of that Malaysian thing. Let me put it like this. The last time Sloan spoke to Congress, the hearing where uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren told him he should be fired, suboptimal, was in October of 2017, just before Wells Fargo went on its last real run. That rally ran into a brick wall when then-Fed Chief Janet Yellen slapped an asset cap on Wells Fargo, and the stock got gutted with no respite until now, when the hair suit's been donned and the penance paid. I'm not saying Wells Fargo is ready to rally big. Uh, right here, right now. But I do think the risk reward has gotten very attractive at these levels. So attractive that yesterday's contentious hearing barely caused the stock to get dinged. After the bashing Sloan's taken, I now feel the stock has been what we call de-risked. You can only hit a guy with so much about things that happened three years ago before people stop caring and it gets boring. Bottom line, for those of you who are willing to be patient, Wells Fargo is doing a lot better right now than it was a year ago, and it's not getting any credit for it. This one may take some time to play out. But I think the downside is contained. If a hostile congressional hearing can't knock your stock down, I'd say it's pretty darn insulated against a potential decline. And it deserves to trade higher, at least as high as its compadres in what could, with rates lower, be a very good environment for retail lending and the mortgage market, Wells' real strength in particular. Man, money's back at the break. And then the light rounds are, are you ready, Skid? Dad, I'm the light round. I'm going to Nicole in Illinois. Nicole. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am good, Nicole. How about you? I'm great. I watch you every day. My Thank you. My daughter 19 has gotten me into trading the stock market. And Thank you. Okay, and I am inquiring about Afria. A-P-H-A. Okay, you know, the guy who actually, I think, runs it day-to-day is Erwin Simon, our old friend from Haines Celestial. And I think that Erwin can pull something off here. I'm not betting him against him. I don't want to, okay? Let's go to Tim in Florida. Tim. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. This is Tim in St. Cloud, Florida. 
Okay. My stock is Nova Gold NG. Yeah, uh, you know, Nova Gold, look, it's just really, really speculative. It has not worked out for a lot of people. I, I, I say you got to stick with Bristow and, and uh, Barrick. That's what I want you to do. How about we go to uh, Brad in Missouri? Brad. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call, and thanks for all you do for us. Sure. Uh, my stock is Inspire, I-N-S-P. Uh, yeah, I actually know this company, Neurostimulation. I think it's a good spec because Neurostimulation is the future, as we know, because when we lit, when we interviewed Omar from Medtronic, Omar Ishrak, he talked about it as being terrific. Let's, I mean, that technology. Let's go to Dave in the Illini. Dave. Dr. Kramer. Dave. Jim, according to my calculations, we are nearing the completion of your 14th season of Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Congratulations. Well, you know, thank you, Dave. We've been around for a little bit, uh, trying to look younger than when the show started. What's going on? You're doing just fine. Thank you. Jim, my, Jim, my stock for today is not the old relic, but the new relic, N-E-W-R. Dave, I like it. You know, that is an anagram for Lucerne. Yes, double, you know, it's like... It's like the Pack Labrum or, you know, a Roman Castavitz and, uh, and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I like New Relic. It's come down a lot, and I think it's time to fly by by. We're not done. We're going to Pierre in Michigan. Lucky Pierre! Booyah! Booyah! Hey, Jim, this is Pierre calling from the Motor City. Uh, just want to get your insight on Edward Life Sciences. Edward uh, Life Sciences has been recommended that stock for about 100 bye, points. Bye, bye. I'm not backing away yet. I need. I don't even get to go anywhere. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. We got a lot of stocks running here. I got to wonder how much of this is simply what I call the greater fool theory in action. You buy something and then another person just buys it again higher and then you buy it higher. That's called greater fool. Uh, It's about multiple expansion, really, though. And it makes me very nervous. Multiple expansion, meaning that one person pays more than another, than another, than another. So let's go through some cases. The most visible ones are uh, Apple, Facebook, and Alphabet. They are undergoing a huge amount of multiple expansion. Think about it. What happened at Apple as its stock has rallied from 142 at the beginning of the year to nearly 182 now? What? I mean, there's nothing about rising earnings per share in any of the research. The only thing I can see is the data showing that Chinese iPhone shipments have kept plummeting. To me, it feels like investors simply looked at Apple and decided to pay a higher priced earnings multiple for a company that makes less of its money from cell phones these days and more from services. How about Facebook? Well, what's new here? The only major development that CEO Mark Zuckerberg has become determined to dispel the impression that Facebook sells your data to all comers to the point where he's potentially cut back revenues and reduced gross margins. Yet the stock has surged anyway from 123 to 173. Once again, greater fool or multiple expansion at work, paying much more for the same or even reduced estimates than the people who owned it before you. Alpha may be the most grotesque of the greater fool multiple expansion theory of the entire bunch. The stock tacked on more than 200 points from its bottom late last year. But the only new development was an earnings report that generated very little enthusiasm as the company still seems to be under siege in its core search business. So what's driving this move? Is it a revaluation of Waymo, the autonomous car division? Is the company finally getting credit for its massive healthcare initiatives that seem to be run almost in secret? 
I mean, how much do we really know about Verily, its life sciences arm? The truth is, I can't find a thing that's gone positive for Alphabet since when they, uh, since the bottom, or when they reported a pretty disappointing quarter. Once again, that stock is running on multiple expansion slash greater fool theory. Now, arguably, these three stocks never should have been down so much in the first place. This multiple expansion is coming on the heels of some major multiple compression in the fourth quarter. But I still wince when I see this kind of action. We see the same thing in the financial technology sector. This group has been running like mad, and it's all about multiple expansion. Nothing's changed. That's what's propelled Visa from 121 to 152. It sent MasterCard from 171 to 230. Apple PayPal may be the most egregious offender. $76 is just under 100 in the wake of a quarter that was widely panned. Now, I did think the numbers were just fine, but this really is all about Wall Street deciding to pay more for the financial technology stocks while paying less for traditional bank stocks, which have seen their price-to-earnings multiples collapse. Now, the same thing could be said about what's aiding the cloud kings, right? I mean, how ServiceNow's gone from 147 to 240, Splunk, uh, 83 to 125, Salesforce, 113 to 160. These three are more debatable, as they've all reported strong numbers. But I think the move is very much about investors rushing into these stocks as they realize that digitization may be a much longer opportunity than they believed. But they should have done it earlier. At the same time, we have seen some major multiple compression in a number of stocks, especially the ones that are competing against Amazon. Kroger's gone from 32 in November down to 24 today. CVS has fallen from 82 to 56, with a miserable pit stop at 52. And Walgreens has sunk from 86 to 62. But at least they reported disappointing numbers. When your earnings are weaker than expected, it makes sense that Wall Street's going to pay less for the future estimates, because they're not trusted. You can't say the same thing for most of the stocks that have been running, though. They're just levitating. Endless series of re-ratings. Multiple expansion. So here's my dilemma. I adore the companies that I mentioned that are having this multiple expansion. I think they have fabulous long-term stories, long-term, which is why my travel trust owns them and is not selling them. You can follow along the travails of this by joining ActionLarsePlus.com or listen to the 1130 Conference Club tomorrow. I have to talk about the fact that we're not selling these stocks, even though I don't like the way that they've run. I don't trust multiple expansion. If I didn't believe so strongly in Apple and Facebook and Salesforce and Alphabet, I'd probably recommend trimming here. Ideally, we want stocks to rally on higher earnings and higher forecasts. But right now, they're rallying on hope. And as much as I like these stocks, I know, I know better, because hope should not be part of the equation. Stick with Craig. I just want to go over again what I said at the top of the show. I have total faith in the company that is Boeing. They will get to the bottom of it because they always have. Is this the level where you want to go buy the stock? I don't know yet. There is too much information that is not yet clear. I like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.